Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There is but one mind in all these men, and it is bent against Caesar. If thou beest not immortal, look about you. Security gives way to conspiracy. The communists in the Kremlin are engaged in a monstrous conspiracy. Just Searching for secret conspiracies is torturous, complex, Why are you so discredited for thinking there's something hidden? You have conspiracy theories. The odds are fairly good there was a conspiracy. It was, if you will, a sandbox conspiracy. Secrecy, conspiracy, and uh, things of that Strictly nature. Strictly speaking, the whole world is inside my head, or it's just my sensations. But of course I have to think the opposite in order to live it all. I'm no conspiracy buff here. So-called conspiracy theorists. There was a conspiracy. Conspiracy theories. There's being a member of a conspiracy. We need to be conspiracy theorists. Incredible number of conspiracy theories. A brave, a new, and shining world. A meretricious conspiracy. Uh, there's all kinds of conspiratorial theories. The vast left-wing conspiracy. A subtle form of conspiracy. Conspiracy. Conspiracy theory. People were wondering if there was an international conspiracy. Oh, it's been a conspiracy. It's been a conspiracy. The jury said, basically, there was a conspiracy. Other conspiracy theories are far more relevant. We'd actually like to know what the heck is going on. We've been on. duped into kind of a... We complacent attitude. Imagine what would happen if we had an informed election. Take the problem of corruption. You read about the mess in Washington. There are a lot of people who lie and get away with it. And, and to open uh, your mind and don't believe them. Don't believe them. Don't that believe That leaves me as, as a fringe conspiracy nut. We know that once a person is perverted, it is practically impossible for that person to adjust to normal attitude. The whole world is sick to the extent people uh, lie. Ultimately, they are caught lying and they lose their credibility. I have to tell you, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe it. But when you see some of the things that have gone on in this country. I say, why can't we have prosperity built on peace rather than prosperity built on wealth? I think some of his advisors were really uh, hard-nosed, semi-Nazis. It's a conspiracy. I'm an innocent bystander, a victim. You ain't seen nothing yet. You're suppressing the conspiracy. You're part of the mainstream conspiracy. And, you know, if you work for NBC, you know, it's GE. What I mean, the conspiracy is about. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yeah.
Billy Mills said, there's no doubt in my mind that he was shot because of the positions he has taken. Peace. 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 Some say that it is useless to speak of peace. Peace, 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 peace. Too many think it is unreal. Peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Peace. Peace. Peace and freedom. Peace and freedom. Freedom and peace. Peace and freedom. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom. Genuine peace genuine peace in a just and genuine peace means of assuring peace world peace world peace like community peace the world of peace pursuing the paths of peace the strategy of peace for peace is a process there is no single simple key to this peace universal peace and goodwill peace need not be impractical and war need not be inevitable. We must therefore persevere in the search for peace. First, examine our attitude towards peace itself. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. to them a peaceful revolution for human rights for too long my country the wealthiest nation in a continent which is not wealthy failed to carry out its full responsibilities to its sister republics we have now accepted that responsibility in the same way those who possess wealth and power in poor nations must accept their own responsibilities they must lead the fight for those basic reforms which alone can preserve the fabric of their societies. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Here at home, the future is equally revolutionary. The New Deal and the Fair Deal were bold measures for their generation. But now this is a new generation. The administration has failed to recognize, has failed to recognize that in these changing times, with a revolution of rising expectations sweeping the globe, the United States has lost its image as a new, strong, vital, revolutionary society. The long view shows us that the revolution of national independence is a fundamental fact of our era. This revolution will not be stopped. 
I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will, directly or indirectly, upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials. When no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference. We need a permanent unemployment insurance program so that there are those who want to work, those who want to work and can't find a job will not be shifted and living on a marginal income without hope for themselves. These are things which other countries in Western Europe did 30 or 40 years ago. Great Britain, and we regard ourselves as a progressive society, had these provisions at the time of the First World War. And yet this is suggested as a most radical proposal. We have to, in the next eight years, build as many school buildings as we build in our entire history. And yet, we have found it extremely difficult to secure support for this vital program. We cannot leave the 17 million people who have retired and who may become ill. If they have no money, under the legislation now in the books, they have a chance to receive some as indigents. But that is not the way we believe it should be done. And if their son happens to have some money in the bank, they do not qualify. And he goes and pays out, and it may break him at a time when he has responsibilities to his children. Why it is so difficult to secure passage of a minimum wage, paying somebody in interstate commerce a dollar or a dollar ten or fifteen cents, I do not understand. But it is regarded in some circles as highly radical and highly inflationary. For the first time, unemployed men can retire at 62. For the first time, and I do not regard this as a particularly radical proposal, dependent children can receive aid for the first time in our history without the wage earner deserting his family. In the old days before this act was passed, if a child was undernourished, it was necessary for the wage earner to desert his wife and family in order that those children should qualify for assistance. But last year that was changed. The president's willingness to abandon tradition was responsible, in part, for his failure to succeed with the business community, in spite of efforts at conciliation. I don't remember the figures exactly, but the president was not uh... Uh, extremely popular in Texas, nor was he in the country. I am delighted to have a chance to say a few words about this administration's policy, which has been the subject of a good deal of discussion, acrimony, and controversy on wages and prices and profits. Now, I know there are some people who say that this isn't any business of the President of the United States, and, uh, that, uh, what, uh, and who believe that the President of the United States should be the honorary chairman of a great fraternal organization and confine himself to ceremonial functions. But that isn't what the Constitution says. And I did not run for President of the United States to fulfill 
that uh, office in that way. Harry Truman once said there are 14 or 15 million Americans who have the resources to have representatives in Washington to protect their interests. And that the interests of the great mass of the other people, 150 or 60 million, is the responsibility of the President of the United States. And I propose to fulfill it. And I believe it is the business of the President of the United States to concern himself with the general welfare and the public interest. And if the people feel that it is not, then they should secure the services of a new President of the United States. and his popularity had, had diminished considerably, as a matter of fact. Businessmen are welcome at the White House. And I welcome the chance to address business meetings such as this. Not uh, because I expect that uh, it will uh, necessarily affect uh, the results of the elections, but I do think, I do think it can affect what this country does. He, he was characterized as being anti-business and uh, uh, part of that was, uh, I think, was the result of his actions with respect to steel prices. The simultaneous and identical actions of United States Steel and other leading steel corporations increasing steel prices by some $6 a ton constitute a wholly unjustifiable and irresponsible defiance of the public interest. In this serious hour in our nation's history, when we are confronted with grave crises in Berlin and Southeast Asia, when we are devoting our energies to economic recovery and stability, when we are asking reservists to leave their homes and families for months on end, and servicemen to risk their lives, and four were killed in the last two days, in Vietnam. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And asking union members to hold down their wage requests at a time when restraint and sacrifice are being asked of every citizen. The American people will find it hard, as I do, to accept a situation in which a tiny handful of steel executives whose pursuit of private power and profit exceeds their sense of public responsibility can show such utter contempt for the interests of 185 million Americans. A few gigantic corporations have decided to increase prices in ruthless disregard of their public responsibilities. Some time ago, I asked each American to consider what he would do for his country. And I asked the steel company. In the last 24 hours, we had their answer. I realize that there are some businessmen 
who feel only they want to be left alone, that government and politics are none of their affairs, that the balance sheet and profit rate of their own corporation are more important than the worldwide balance of power or the nationwide rate of unemployment. But I hope it's not rushing the season to recall to you the passage from Dickens' Christmas Carol in which Ebenezer Scrooge is terrified by the ghost of his former partner, Jacob Marley. And Scrooge, appalled by Marley's story of ceaseless wandering, cries out, but you were always a good man of business, Jacob. And the ghost of Marley, his legs bound by a chain of ledger books and cash boxes, replied, business, mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Members and guests of the Florida State Chamber of Commerce, whether we work in the White House or the State House or in a house of industry or commerce, mankind is our business. And if we work in harmony, if we understand the problems of each other and the responsibilities that each of us bears, then surely the business of mankind will prosper. And your children and mine will move ahead in a secure world and one in which there's opportunity for them all. Thank you. No one was more hostile than the southerners of the far right. Not only were the Kennedys showing themselves soft on communism and in favor of civil rights for black citizens throughout the South, but Kennedy had hurt their pockets by scaling back oil depletion tax credits. But Texas was home to Kennedy's most dangerous opponents. Oil millionaires and billionaires in Texas were petrified of one major factor that John F. Kennedy was considering, cutting the oil depletion allowance. And there was no way they were going to allow that. Essentially, they would save billions of dollars if it stays as it is. It was called a 27.5% oil depletion allowance. John Kennedy thought it was too liberal. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. Big business is using the stock market slump as a means of forcing you to come to terms with business. Their attitude is, now we have you where they want you. Have you seen any reflection of this attitude? I can't believe I'm where business, big business wants me. We are anxious to live in harmony with the Russian people. Communism in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life. It reveals a condition akin to disease that spreads like an epidemic. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. A warning to the American people not to fall into the same trap as the Soviets. Not to see only a distorted and desperate view of the other side. Not to see conflict as inevitable, accommodation as impossible, and communication as nothing more than an exchange of threats. No government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. The hard reality of life in much of Latin America will not be solved simply by complaining about Castro, by blaming all problems on communism, or generals, or nationalism. The Republican National Chairman 
has said that your administration's attitude in general is one of appeasement toward co communism throughout the world. Do you have any comment on this criticism by top spokesman of the opposition party? No, I don't. We still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, in acts of courage. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war. Almost unique, among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. And no nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union in the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland, a loss equivalent to the destruction of this country east of Chicago. Our primary long-range interest in Geneva, however, is general and complete disarmament, designed to take place by stages, permitting parallel political developments to build the new institutions of peace that both sides begin anew the quest for peace. Before the dark powers of destruction, unleashed by science, engulf all humanity. It is therefore our intention to challenge the Soviet Union, not to an arms race, but to a peace race. Let us call a truce to terror. The logical place to begin is a treaty assuring the end of nuclear tests of all kinds in every environment under workable control. We also proposed a mutual ban on atmospheric testing without inspection or control in order to save the human race from the poison of radioactive fallout. Together we shall save our planet or together we shall perish in its flames. By March 1954, the Brush Fire War in Indochina was almost eight years old, and the French position had deteriorated, hoping to draw the communist guerrillas into decisive open battle. The French made a stand at the fortress of Dien Bien Phu, but by mid-March, the French forces were surrounded and cut off. Military aid from the United States had made it possible for France to maintain the war. But in spite of an ever-increasing flow of supplies, the French cause appeared doomed. The question of American military intervention was raised. This might have serious risks, but these risks are far less than would face us a few years from now if we dare not be resolute today. Senator Kennedy felt otherwise.
I am reluctant to make any statement which may be misinterpreted as unappreciative of the gallant French struggle at Dien Bien Phu and elsewhere. But the speeches of President Eisenhower and Secretary Dulles and others have left too much unsaid. For if the American people are, for the fourth time in this century, to travel the long and tortuous road of war, particularly a war which we now realize would threaten the survival of civilization, then I believe we have a right to inquire in detail into the nature of the struggle in which we may become engaged. Certainly, I, for one, favor a policy of united action by many nations whenever necessary to achieve a military and political victory for the free world in that area, realizing full well that it may require some commitment of manpower. But to pour money, material, and men into the jungles of Indochina without at least a remote prospect of victory would be dangerously futile and self-destructive. Of course, all discussions of united action assume the inevitability of such victory. Such assumptions are not unlike similar predictions of confidence which have lulled the American people for many years. I am frankly of the belief that no amount of American military assistance in Indochina can conquer an enemy which is everywhere and at the same time nowhere. An enemy of the people which has the sympathy and covert support of the people. If the French persist in their refusal to grant the legitimate independence and freedom desired by the peoples of the associated states, and if those peoples and the other peoples of Asia remain aloof from the conflict as they have in the past, then it is my hope that Secretary Dulles will recognize the futility of channeling American men and machines into that hopeless struggle. I think that uh, we should have insisted uh, four or five years ago that the French get out of French Indochina and permit a free native government to step up as to set up as we did in Indonesia in the case of the Dutch. Military action in Indochina. French regulars land along the coast in search of roving communist bands. For France, it represents a tremendous sacrifice of manpower and financial resources. Without American help, the burden would be too great. I think perhaps if we go over to the map here, I can indicate to you why it is so vitally important. Here is Indochina. If Indochina falls, Thailand is put in almost impossible position. Nixon becomes one of the first hawks to warn of the domino effect of communist aggression. That indicates to you and to all of us why it is vitally important that Indochina not go behind the Iron Curtain. One year later, in 1954, French forces are besieged by the communists at a place called Dien Bien Phu. A massive resupply operation fails to tip the balance. Nixon is one of the first to favor military intervention, but President Eisenhower won't commit troops to a ground war in Asia. Nixon supports the use of tactical nuclear weapons, but Ike says the sun is still shining. The NBN Fu isn't the end of the world. The NBN Fu falls. The French surrender. In Geneva, a peace conference leaves Vietnam divided into a communist north and a non-communist south. But there is to be no peace in Vietnam. 
Under pressure of growing communist aggression, the flow of American equipment and advisors is increased. In the 1950s, Nixon backs the deployment of American military advisors to South Vietnam. Superior equipment and mobility are used to full advantage to carry the fight to the enemy swiftly, wherever his presence becomes known. If Indochina goes, several things happen right away. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, the Crop Peninsula, the last little bit of end hanging on down there would be scarcely defensible. The tin and the tungsten that we so greatly value from that area would cease coming. The letters and the reports we had on Ho Chi Minh's attitude back in 1946 he wrote, I think it was seven letters to this government and received no reply. The, 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 the pathos almost, the, uh, the sadness that here's a man who felt and believed the United States would be sympathetic to his purpose of gaining his independence from a colonial power. And then to find we, you know, he, he, this is what he'd read, he'd been here, he'd read our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence. He thought surely the United States would be interested. We had testimony in the committee that his one worry was that it was so insignificant. Vietnam was so far away and so insignificant, we, we, we would never bother about it. It's too, too small for, to ever attract the attention of the United States. He was sure in his own mind that if we would ever put our minds and focus upon it, we would be for him. How different history would have been for us and for them if we had felt a common interest in the colonial province like Vietnam, seeking its independence of France. Colonel Fletcher Prouty. At the time of the Kennedy assassination, I was the chief of special operations in the Joint Staff, working for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Special operations in those days was a euphemism for the military support of the clandestine operations of CIA around the world. Prouty was an insider who claimed that while some in the Pentagon were gearing up for war, he was secretly helping President Kennedy plan for peace. During the summer, July, August, and September, he had a very experienced group of people work on his new policy for Vietnam. It was published in October, and it was called the National Security Action Memorandum Number 263. And that memorandum, signed under the direction of the president, was to bring men home by Christmas and get everybody out by 1965. What we're looking at here are approximately 15,000 pages of documents on Kennedy's Vietnam policies that I've collected from all the archives. 
in the United States. Um, in some cases, many of them are newly declassified. In a new book, JFK and Vietnam, military historian Major John Newman offers his conclusions about Kennedy's Vietnam policy. I don't think there's any doubt that JFK was pulling out of Vietnam when he, when he was killed. And I think because the most fundamental tenet of his policy was no combat troops, and we know that Johnson put in combat troops, I feel it's safe to say that the assassination led directly to the escalation of the war. Did that policy change after the assassination? Only four days later. What happened? Four days later, under Lyndon Johnson, they issued a new National Security Action Memorandum, number 273, which began a modest change. Then in March of 64, another memorandum, 288, began the attacks on North Vietnam and the escalation of the war. And in my last conversation with him, I'll always remember it, uh, he said, as soon as the election is over, I'm going to get the boys out of Vietnam. Uh, to myself, I've always said there would have been never that great disaster that we had, the loss of lives that he had, 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 uh, had, he, had he lived. Newman's research has led him to believe that Kennedy may have been feigning right to move left, supporting the war publicly while privately planning to withdraw. By 1963, Kennedy had a problem. That problem was his re-election. You have to reconcile this public record, and the public record itself is ambiguous because Kennedy makes statements, the Cronkite one, which appear to be, you know, it's their war, they'll have to fight it, and then there are these many public statements that indicate we should stay the course. The analysis, it's their war. They're the ones who have to win it or lose it. We can help them, we can give them equipment, we can send our men out there as advisors, but they have to win it, the people of Vietnam, against the communists. But I don't agree with those who say we should withdraw. That'd be a great mistake. That'd be a great mistake. I know people don't like Americans to be engaged in this kind of an effort. Forty-seven Americans have been killed in combat with the enemy. Uh, it's what I would have expected him to say uh, as a political statement, whether he was considering withdrawal or not. He would say he was not. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. President Eisenhower warned the nation of the dangers of the military-industrial complex. A permanent war economy was their business, with billions at stake. Sir, would you give us your appraisal of the situation in South Vietnam now, since the coup, and the purposes for the Honolulu Conference? That, that well, because we do have a new situation and a new government. We attempt to assess the situation, what American policy should be, what our aid policy should be, how we can intensify the struggle, how we can uh, bring Americans out of there. Now, that is our object, to bring Americans home. October 2nd, I had returned from Vietnam. At that time, we had 16,000 military advisors. I recommended to President Kennedy and to the Security Council that we establish a plan and an objective of removing all of them within two years. Kennedy announced we were going to pull out all of our military advisors by the end of 65. We're going to take a thousand out at the end of 63. And we did. The way that struck people who were leaning toward the profits and the benefits of the Vietnam War was really uh, unimaginable. You can't imagine. So 
a power elite coalesces. They don't have to vote. And among them, they say, you know, that guy's got to go. Is there any speed up in the withdrawal from Vietnam? And, and, and well, as you know, uh, when Secretary McNamara and General Taylor came back, they announced that we would expect to withdraw a thousand men from uh, South Vietnam before the end of the year. does not record another such lengthy and consistent chronicle of error as we have shown in Vietnam. Throughout the war in Vietnam, the United States has exercised a degree of restraint unprecedented in the annals of war. Freedom. 
we could pull out of there, the dominoes would fall, and that part of the world would go to the communists. After reviewing the situation in Vietnam, McNamara recommended that to avert certain defeat of the South, America must become directly involved in the war, starting with covert operations against North Vietnam. Johnson agreed. He approved a top-secret program, codenamed Op Plan 34A, for commando raids on the North Vietnamese coast. A second, separate covert operation involved U.S. Navy destroyers, specially fitted out to gather electronic intelligence. Codenamed DeSoto patrols, they would operate in the same general area, in the Gulf of Tonkin, off the North Vietnamese coast. On July 31st, four assault craft left the op-plan base at Da Nang flying the Stars and Stripes. Once in North Vietnamese waters, the flags were stowed away. Commandos attack radar stations on two offshore islands in the Gulf of Tonkin. Within hours, the U.S. destroyer Maddox, fitted out for a DeSoto patrol, arrived in the Gulf, heading north toward the islands the commandos had just attacked. So, were these American operations intended to provoke North Vietnam? Yes. What happened was we'd been playing around up there, and they came out, gave us a warning, and we knocked hell out of them. We are within their 12-mile limit. There have been some uh, covert operations in that area that we've uh, been carrying on, blowing up some bridges and things of that kind. So I imagine they wanted to put a stop to it. So they come out there and fire, and we respond immediately. We cripple them up, and... Then we go right back where we were with that destroyer and with another and plus of plenty of planes and we just, we haven't pulled out, we pulled up. The officer commanding the DeSoto patrol recommended pulling out. The answer was no. Instead, a second destroyer, the Turner Joy, joined the Maddox and a second carrier, the Constellation, was sent to reinforce the Ticonderoga. next few hours, the gap between what actually happened at sea and what was alleged to have happened began to widen. The two destroyers were ordered to sail on a course that took them within 11 miles of the North Vietnamese coast and four miles of North Vietnam's offshore islands. There was no attempt at concealment. The operation would take place in full daylight. retaliation for communist PT boat attacks on the high seas. This is the Maddox, one of the two destroyers that were attacked while patrolling international waters in the Gulf of Tonkin near North Vietnam. Warplanes from two carriers, the Ticonderoga and the Constellation, avenged the unwarranted red assault with 64 sorties to North Vietnam PT bases. The U.S. sorties were launched for one purpose, as a warning to the communists that unprovoked attacks will bring prompt response. Thank you. 
renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action in reply. While the tear destroyers were cruising in company on routine patrol duty in the Tonkin Gulf in international waters, some 65 miles from the nearest point of land. They put out that propaganda, but they got caught because we were able to disclose within two days that if they would check upon the log of the Maddox, for example, they would find she was only 11 to 13 miles from the bombing of those islands. And of course, that's coverage. And the North Vietnamese knew that it was coverage. Do our uh, naval vessels afford any cover for the... Our our naval vessels afford no cover whatsoever. The sad fact is, history will record that the United States was an aggressor in Tonkin Bay. We were violating the rights of North Vietnam. had no right to proceed on the second day to ourselves bomb uh, North Vietnam, the areas where her torpedo boats were kept. But we had to do it. That wasn't self-defense. Bombing, bombing North Vietnam was not within the right of the president to act in self-defense of the republic. My duties on board the seaplane tender were uh, nuclear weapons officer. On August 4th, there was an alleged attack on the USS Maddox and Turner Joy, two of our destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin. In the course of our conversation, this chief petty officer told me that he was a sonar man on board the USS Maddox and that he had been in sonar, the sonar room, during the attack. He told me that in his estimation, there were no torpedoes fired at the ship or otherwise during that alleged attack. And furthermore, he constantly repeated this uh, sent this information to the commanding officer on the bridge. The North Vietnamese have no submarines. What is the purpose of that movement? This is purely precautionary so that the fleet will be prepared for all eventualities. What General sort of eventuality, General? Well, possible submarine attack. By whom? By anyone. You always contended that in the uh, first incident they were having... Uh, I'm, I'm contending that having the, sh the Maddox and the Joy there constituted, in view of the knowledge as to what the South Vietnamese boats were up to, an act of constructive aggression on our part. Johnson had signed the Tonkin Gulf Resolution on August 10th, just a week after the so-called incident. Blank check, his administration was later to call the functional equivalent of a declaration of war. And I pledge to all Americans to use those powers with all the wisdom and the judgment that God grants to me. Standing behind the president was Senator William Fulbright. He'd steered the resolution through Congress, acting in the belief, he said later, that in its dealings with Congress, the White House told the truth. You got to remember that Senator Fulbright was a politician of the old school. He was a gentleman, and he just did not believe that his president, his Secretary of State, and the Secretary of Defense would deceive him. And 
try to pull the wool over his eyes and, and asking for his support for a matter of this nature. Uh, he was deceived and he felt very, very badly about it. It's the worst incident he said that ever happened to him in his we career. We always hesitate public to use the dirty word lies, but a lie is a lie. I mean, it's a misrepresentation of fact. And it's supposed to be a criminal act if it's done under oath. Mr. Johnson didn't say it under oath. He just said it. We, didn't, we don't usually have the president under oath. After midnight, while the air attacks were still underway, a buoyant McNamara briefed Pentagon reporters. Describing the attacks on the destroyers as entirely unprovoked, he claimed that throughout their patrol, the two destroyers had remained at a distance of at least 30 miles from North Vietnam's coast. Omitting to mention that only that morning, he told the president their limit was 11 miles. The course of, of our destroyers operating... <coughs> 30, 40 to 60 miles off the coast of North Vietnam, international waters, moving southward. It was a confident performance until a reporter strayed into dangerous waters. Can you give us the basic reasons for the uh, uh, Gulf of Tonkin patrol? It's a routine patrol of the type we carry out in international waters all over the world. Does it have anything to do with uh, movements of uh, junks or no. whatever it is back no, there, it has no special relationship to, to uh, uh, any uh, operations in that area. We, we're carrying routine patrols of this kind uh, on all over the world all the time. Do you have yes. any idea why the North Vietnamese may have done this? None. The following morning, August 5th, McNamara was announcing details of the ample forces he had promised the president before the second supposed attack had even begun. Last night I announced that moves were underway to reinforce our forces in the Pacific area. An attack carrier group has been transferred from the first fleet on the Pacific coast to the western Pacific. Secondly, interceptor and fighter-bomber aircraft have been moved into South Vietnam. Thirdly, fighter-bomber aircraft have been moved into Thailand. Fourthly, interceptor and fighter-bomber squadrons have been transferred from the United States into advanced bases in the Pacific. Fifthly, an anti-submarine task force group has been moved into the South China Sea. And finally, selected army and marine forces have been alerted and readied for movement. As the juggernaut rolled into action, truth was the first casualty. Johnson wanted the assent of Congress with a minimum of debate or qualification. He was beside himself when the loquacious Senator Hubert Humphrey, the man he planned to make his running mate in the coming presidential election, talked about the commando raids in public. Johnson, determined to protect the authorized version of events, called a mutual friend. Uh, Hello. Hello. Jim. Yes, Mr. President. How you doing? I'm doing fine. You? Pretty good. I don't know, uh, I don't know how to get this message over, but, uh, uh, this boy, our friend Hubert, is just destroying himself with his big mouth. He went on the TV and every person in town that's uh, handling war plans, it just uh, scared them to death because he just blabbed everything that he had heard in a briefing, just like it was his personal knowledge. They said, for instance, how would you account for these uh, 
unimpeachable attack on our destroyers when we innocently out there in the Gulf, 60 miles from shore. Humphrey said, well, uh, we have been carrying on some operations in that area, and we've been having some covert operations where we have been going in and knocking out roads and petroleum things and so forth, and that's exactly what we have been doing. In their drive for world domination, the communists have identified different levels of possible conflict to exploit. Khrushchev speaks of war and peace in the light of what he calls the new means of mass destruction. But Khrushchev recognizes another category, which he calls wars of liberation and popular revolt, but which we prefer to call subversion and covert aggression. It is these wars which Khrushchev says are not only admissible, but inevitable. A free world's answer, tested during a year in Vietnam, is counterinsurgency. At the request of the South Vietnamese government, we are helping peace-loving people learn how to defend themselves. Here, in a remote setting, there is new emphasis on the importance of the individual fighting man as a teacher, as well as a leader. Our troops are here to advise and train the South Vietnamese, but fight only to defend themselves on assignments which often take them into the midst of a bitter and dangerous struggle. In this conflict, it is harder to find the enemy than to fight him. The plan to protect those who dwell in thousands of rural villages and towns resulted in the fortifying of approximately 5,000 communities in the first year. During an intensive visit to Southeast Asia, Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara sees how the Fortified Hamlet program is working out. Teamwork and on-the-spot training call for dedication from the man in the field to the top commander, General Paul D. Harkins. The U.S. effort to our Vietnamese allies is a vast and comprehensive one. It involves political, economic, psychological, and military measures. All of the armed forces of the U.S. play a part. We've put over about three million of them into what I would call a concentration camp. They call it a refugee center. It's got barbed wire around it, they can't get out of it. Taking these people from the graves of their ancestors, from their rice paddies. And we say, oh, well, we've pacified X million people. Yeah, we've pacified some more people by putting them in these camps. Now, America wins the wars that she undertakes. Make no mistake about it. And we have declared war on tyranny and aggression. If this little nation goes down the drain and can't maintain her independence, ask yourself what's going to happen to all the other little nations. I'm Roger Hillsman. I was director of intelligence and research in the State Department under John F. Kennedy, and then assistant secretary of state for Far Eastern Affairs under Kennedy and for a while under President Johnson. There were two things that he very, very much wished to avoid. One was making this an American war. As he used to say, it's their war, the South Vietnamese. We can give them aid, we can even give them advisors. 
but they must win it or lose it. And I think he was fully prepared to let them lose it rather than make it an American war. He felt that if we put Americans in there, it would drive, with their white faces, it would drive communism into the, uh, nationalism into the arms of communism. The second thing he wished to avoid was internationalizing the war, as we called it. By this, we meant bombing the North or attacking the North. First and foremost, because it would not work. And here, 30-some-odd months of bombing has shown that his judgment was right. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Every day, someone jumps up and shouts and says, Tell us what is happening in Vietnam and why are we in Vietnam and how did you get us into Vietnam? Well, I didn't get you into Vietnam. You've been in Vietnam 10 years. Johnson made it McNamara's war. I want them to get off their butts and get out in those jungles and whip hell out of some communists, he said. It is the melancholy law of human societies to be compelled sometimes to choose a great evil in order to ward off a greater evil. Lyndon Baines Johnson. Born in 1908, he grew up in a comfortable middle-class home in Johnson City. At an early age, Lyndon showed a keen interest in politics. From the beginning, he was driven by a determination to win, whatever the cost. In a word, he was ruthless. There wasn't anything he wouldn't do to get what he wanted, regardless of what it was. And probably the best example would be in 1948 when he was running for the Senate. And he was running against a man named Coke Stevenson. And the election was very, very close. The race was so close, there was no way to call it. The lead seesawed back and forth. I said, I think you're going to win it. He said, no, I think we've lost it. And I said, no, it's going to be the reversal of uh, 1941. Three days after the polls closed, the votes were still coming in, and Stevenson led by a handful. It looked as if Stevenson would be the new senator from Texas. But Johnson remembered 1941. He was not about to lose again. The election now hinged on the Duke of Duval County, George Parr, the man who controlled the votes in South Texas. George Parr controlled that county, and those people voted the way he wanted them to vote. No question about that. None whatever. Now, the candidates had nothing to do with it. In the nature of things, you don't write down, uh, bought these votes, you know, yesterday afternoon at 4 o'clock. But I, obviously there was some understanding with the, between the Johnson people and the political bosses in South Texas. In the tiny South Texas town of Alice, six days after the polls had closed, 202 additional votes were reported from precinct box 13. When they were counted, all but two were for Lyndon Johnson. 
When the signatures of the 202 new voters were examined, some say the names were all written in the same ink and listed in alphabetical order. It did look to me like there had been a change in ink, and it looked like uh, 200 or 202 or three uh, names had been added uh, to the poll list uh, in a different ink by a different hand. Mr. Stevenson was an outraged man that felt like the election had been stolen from him, and he felt like what he'd just seen was evidence of that. Stevenson challenged the election at the Texas State Democratic Convention. It was no use. The Johnson forces were too powerful. When it was all over, precinct box number 13 made the difference. Johnson won by 87 votes. But the question of a stolen election remained. Nineteen years later, Ronnie Duggar met in the White House with President Lyndon Johnson and asked him about the election of 1948. One night up in his uh, bedroom, he started laughing and he seemed to wonder if he could find something and he said he was going back into Bird's bedroom, which was next door, and he rummaged around in a closet. I, could all, I think I could hear him rummaging around in the closet and he came in with this photograph of these five guys in front of this old car. Uh, with uh, box 13 balanced on the hood of it. I looked at him and grinned. And he grinned back, and, but he wouldn't explain it to me. I asked him, well, who were these guys? Why did they have box 13 on the hood of this car? Uh, uh, what did it mean? And he just, nothing. He wouldn't say. And that stuck with him the rest of his life. That rigged ballot became the template for a political career based on bribery and corruption. The full extent of Johnson's criminal activity only began to unravel 11 years after his death. In 1984, at this courthouse in Franklin, Texas, a former Johnson business associate, Billy Celestes, appeared before a grand jury. According to Billy Celestes, there were eight murders perpetrated on the part of Lyndon Johnson the first name was a man named Douglas Kinza. That was followed by a number of men involved in Estes' businesses who were corrupt. And they were all killed with carbon monoxide. Josepha Johnson's name is listed on this Justice Department document. That's Lyndon Johnson's sister. So Estes is accusing the Vice President of the United States of murdering his own sister. And the eighth name listed is the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. And then there is a promise of knowing more. And if Billy Celestes is telling the truth, and there is every reason to believe he is, it gives you an idea of the depth of the corruption and the ruthlessness of Lyndon Johnson. According to Estes' written testimony, that murderous cycle began in 1951 in Austin, Texas, at this downtown golf course known as Butler's Pitch and Putt. The killer was a Johnson henchman called Malcolm Wallace. Malcolm Wallace was born and raised in Texas. He was Texas-bred, Texas-educated, a very uh, intelligent man. And uh, when he graduated from uh, the University of Texas, he was evidently recruited by Lyndon Johnson, and he was given a job at the Federal Department of Agriculture. John Douglas Kinzer, the golf pro at Butler's Pitch and Putt, was having an affair with Wallace's wife and with Lyndon Johnson's sister. Lyndon Johnson's sister, Josepha, was an alcoholic. She was a drug user. She was sexually promiscuous. She had loose lips. And who knows what she might tell Kinzer or others about Lyndon Johnson's political shenanigans. Malcolm Wallace walked into the 
pitch and putt golf course in Austin, Texas, and shot to death in cold blood, John Douglas Kinzer. Kinzer died here for his indiscretions. Wallace was soon arrested and went on trial in Austin three months later. First degree murder, open and shut case. He gets a lawyer known as a Lyndon Johnson lawyer. So Lyndon Johnson is going to do his best to get his friend out of hot water. During that trial, Lyndon Johnson took a room at a local hotel. And the 10 days that that trial was going, constantly sent runners from the hotel to the courthouse to bring him word of what was going on during the trial. So he followed the pulse of the trial very, very carefully. Malcolm Wallace is found guilty of first-degree murder, but through influence of Lyndon Johnson, Malcolm Wallace receives a five-year suspended sentence. Lyndon Johnson was able to get his man out of first-degree murder. Much of the control Johnson exercised was acquired through an early alliance with a fellow Texan. Edward Clark gained unrivaled power in the late 1930s with a series of high positions in the state government. He became Johnson's lawyer and a formidable ally throughout his career. The power Edward Clark exercised covered almost every avenue of government power in the state of Texas. He would make sure that important appointments were covered by his men. Uh, the judge's control was through their vote. I mean, he had their decision in the palm of his hand. And this was, of course, important because Austin was the capital of the state. And anything that happened legally uh, went through Austin, and that meant it went through Clark. He was known as the secret boss of Texas. He could and did arrange for people to be killed. Um, he arranged for money to be laundered. He had that control. This building in downtown Austin became the headquarters of Edward Clark's all-powerful law firm. Barr McClellan was recruited as a young lawyer in 1966, three years after the assassination, unaware of the dark secrets hidden within. Soon after joining, in an after-hours conversation with John Coates, one of the firm's attorneys, Barr was made privy to an astonishing piece of information. Coates and I started talking, and in the course of it, John told me, if the truth be told, Clark arranged the assassination of Kennedy. It was a kind of statement that you can't easily forget even though I personally chose not to believe it at the time, it stick with me. Attorneys know they're acting behind a privilege. They can say things to each other. And this talk would go on uh, at after-hours drinks, at uh, Christmas parties, uh, just traveling on the road. And it was like Johnson had to get Kennedy out of the way. I worked closely with Don Thomas, and Thomas was the business attorney to the president and was the second man in the law firm. Thomas and I did a number of cases together, and we traveled the state because he did not fly. We'd been to Dallas one day shortly after I became partner, and it was driving back. And just out of the blue, it seems now, looking back, that Thomas said, 
I am the only living man who knows what happened in Box 13. Now we know what that meant. That was the stolen 1948 election. I didn't say anything. Sometimes it's best just to listen. And then he looked away and added, but Clark took care of things in Dallas. At that point, what I'd been hearing in the law firm, what John Coates had first told me, I knew it was true, because this came from a man that was Johnson's business attorney, one of Johnson's most trusted confidants, a man who worked very closely with Johnson during his maturing years, his, his uh, growing up years, so to speak, and as president. And when I heard that, there was no question but that Clark had been behind the assassination, and he'd done it for Johnson. I know beyond a reasonable doubt that Johnson murdered Kennedy. He acted through Clark. He saw that it was done, and he did it out of a corruption of power that is unequaled in our history. After becoming a senator in 1948, Johnson developed an unrivaled power base in Washington using his forceful personality, political skills, and corruption. He established himself as one of the most influential men in the nation, but as vice president to Kennedy, he lost much of that authority. By 1961, his past was catching up with him. In Texas, Henry Marshall, a local agricultural official, had begun investigating one of Johnson's illegal sources of funding. Working out of these offices in Bryan, Texas, Marshall had become aware of Billy Solesti's misappropriation of federal cotton allotment funds. Attempts to buy off Marshall had failed, and his investigations were beginning to threaten the vice president himself. Billy Celestes became worried, Lyndon Johnson became worried, and some of them got together and decided, what are we going to do with Henry Marshall? So on one particular day, according to Billy Celestes, Billy Celestes, Cliff Carter, an aide to Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, the vice president of the United States, and Malcolm Wallace got together. And finally, Lyndon made the statement, get rid of him. On June the 3rd, 1961, Henry Marshall failed to return home. An extensive search was made of the family farm near Franklin, Texas. His only son, Don, was 11 years old at the time and remembers that day well. My uncle found him on the second attempt uh, when he, he went out uh, to the place. He was uh, in a very remote location, probably about three quarters of a mile off the road. My mother had this stone placed here uh, in order to, to mark the spot. The truck had blood around the sides of it. Uh, the uh, side on the, on the passenger side had a dent in the fender behind the passenger door, and that's apparently where my father's head was uh, knocked into the side of the truck, and uh, he had his eye damaged at that point. Uh, there were a number of yopon bushes that had been broken, and, and the gun was laying beside the body, and pretty much nothing else uh, could be seen except signs of a struggle. Local officials immediately ruled it a suicide, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. He had been shot five times with a bolt-action rifle. He 
had enough carbon monoxide in his lungs to cause him to pass out at the time he died. Uh, there was no effort made to collect any evidence or preserve the, the crime scene. They had pretty much determined in their minds that this was going to be a suicide. When Billy Saul Estes testified before the grand jury in Franklin, uh, he implicated Cliff Carter and Malcolm Wallace as the people that were most involved in my father's murder. Uh, Wallace being the trigger man and Cliff Carter uh, being the one who arranged for the uh, murder. I'm firmly convinced that uh, Malcolm Wallace uh, uh, was the, the killer of my father. Who that would have aided, uh, probably uh, political power behind everything, Johnson would have been aided more than anyone else. The grand jury concluded Henry Marshall in 1961 was murdered which means in simple language that the grand jury believed Billy Solestes when he told them that Lyndon Johnson had ordered Malcolm Wallace to kill Henry Marshall. But Johnson's dark dealings were not confined to Texas. In late summer 1963, one of his long-term partners in crime was about to be exposed for corruption by a Senate investigation. Bobby Baker was the secretary to the Senate majority. Basically, he was the secretary for the Senate. And he was one of Lyndon Johnson's closest associates. And everything that Lyndon Johnson wanted to perpetrate, he had Bobby's help. Essentially, if somebody wanted to get a military contract and they wanted influence of Lyndon Johnson to help them, they had to pay off Bobby Baker, who would then pay off Lyndon Johnson. It's the world of bribes. Bobby Baker was involved in a call girl service. He was involved in real estate schemes. He was involved in dealings with organized crime. He was in dealings with oil men, particularly Clint Murkison, an oil millionaire from Texas. So as a result of all this, Bobby Baker was in big trouble. And uh, with a little bit of inspiration on the part of the Kennedys that they could get Bobby Baker to talk, Lyndon was all done. Lyndon Baines Johnson, if Robert Kennedy had his way, would not only not be on the 1964 ticket as the vice presidential candidate, but he would go to jail for the corruption that he was involved with. Although Johnson faced political extinction at the hands of the Kennedys, he had powerful allies with their own agendas that threatened the president, as researcher Gregory Burnham explains. People would think that he had no enemies. He was so popular. He smiled. He appeared happy. Everyone loved him worldwide. But what people don't seem to understand is behind the scenes, he was making changes, and he was making them decisively, and he was taking some very, very daring steps. He was committed to pull out of Vietnam. By October, he had signed a document, an SAM 263, to that effect. A thousand troops home by Christmas, and all personnel out of Vietnam by 1965. But that wasn't very good for the military-industrial complex. Is abolishing the Central Intelligence Agency, pulling their teeth holding them to task, back to why they were originally created by Truman. Their original mandate by law is only to coordinate intelligence, not to create the Bay of Pigs 
NSAM 55 told the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that the CIA no longer can do that. And any military operation has to come directly from them to the president, period. That kind of a document really causes problems. Make a comment about something which a lot of folks haven't heard too much about. Did you know about this article by Arthur Kroc? Uh, younger people are saying, who's Arthur Kroc? Arthur Kroc was the single most respected journalist in America in the 1960s. He wrote on the editorial page of the New York Times. He was very close to the Kennedys. In fact, Joseph Kennedy, John Kennedy's father's first book, was ghostwritten by Arthur Kroc. And young John Kennedy, when he was a young man and worked on his thesis, Why England Slept, he wrote it in Arthur Kroc's Georgetown Library with the help of Arthur Kroc. And then Arthur Kroc had it turned into a book and got him a literary agent. That's how close he was. John Kennedy, when he wanted to speak to the American people, talked to Arthur Kroc, and Arthur Kroc would publish material. This is October 3rd, 1963, editorial page of the New York Times. Arthur Kroc's column called The Intra-Administration War in Vietnam. And Arthur Kroc is saying John Kennedy has declared war on the Central Intelligence Agency. And John Kennedy wants the American people to know there are some very serious problems. And then he goes on to say, uh, twice, according to a high the United States source. Twice the CIA flatly refused to carry out instructions from Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge, that was Kennedy's ambassador to Vietnam. And in one instance, frustrated plan of action Mr. Lodge brought from Washington, from John Kennedy, because the agency disagreed with it. You like that? The CIA disagreed with it. They don't do what the president says. Then it goes on. Listen to this. The CIA's growth was likened to a malignancy, which the very high official was not or even the White House could control any longer. And listen to this. If the United States ever experiences an attempt at a coup to overthrow the government, it will come from the CIA. That's John Kennedy talking to the American people in October. The next month they blew his head off, and there's the Warren Commission, and they don't ask Arthur Kroc, where'd you get this information? That John Kennedy was talking, or someone on his behalf was talking, to you about the CIA being possibly involved in a coup. If there was a coup, it would come from the CIA. There is now considerable evidence of Oswald's links with agents from the CIA and the FBI in the months before the assassination. In August 1963, in Dallas, the CIA operative, Antonio Vesiana, met with his case officer, Maurice Bishop. Bishop was the CIA coordinator of the most violent anti-Castro exile group. And in Dallas, he also met with Lee Harvey Oswald. I saw Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas uh, in a meeting of 10 or 15 minutes with Mr. Uh, Morris Bishop in Dallas in that time. And you feel certain that Oswald was working with or associated with American intelligence? Well, at least he was associated with Morris Bishop. And if Morris Bishop was uh, intelligence, he, is, he was working for an intelligence service in the United States, I don't doubt that, that he was working with him. The Select Committee on Assassinations will at this time come to order. The most damaging sealed documents of the House Select Committee on Assassinations accuse high-ranking officials of the Central Intelligence Agency of lying to the people of the United States about Lee Harvey Oswald. House investigators believe this man, David Atlee Phillips, met with Oswald two months before the assassination. Phillips was the CIA's chief of Western Hemisphere operations, 
and was in charge, among other things, of plots against Fidel Castro. According to the secret reports, Antonio Viciana, a leader of anti-Castro Cubans directed by the CIA, saw Oswald talking to a senior CIA agent he knew by the cover name Maurice Bishop. Viciana provided enough information for House investigators to compile this sketch of the agent who met Oswald. Could it have been Phillips? Investigators believe it was. Phillips denied under oath that he knew Oswald, but House investigators did not believe him and wanted him charged with perjury. The government declined to prosecute, leaving investigators furious. The director of the CIA in 1963 was John McCone. He caused a sensation among committee staffers when he admitted there was an agent using the cover name Bishop. But a secret memo reveals he was allowed to reverse his testimony. A CIA lawyer wrote the committee, I should inform you that he had been in error. In summary, Mr. McCone withdraws his statements on this point. The man who fingered Maurice Bishop, Antonio Viciana, was shot in the head soon after testifying, but survived. Frightened, he will no longer talk about the case. But we caught up with him in Florida. They wounded me in the, in the head. They trying to kill me. You know why? Why would anybody? I don't know. Do Perhaps the DBI knows. The DBI knows. Did they tell you? No. Actually, actually. David Adley Phillips died of cancer in 1988. Investigators believe Phillips was angry at JFK for botching the Cuban Bay of Pigs operation. Did you kill the president? The second explosive revelation in the sealed documents also links the CIA directly to Oswald. While living in Dallas, Oswald was befriended by Russian-born George de Morinchild. Investigators determined he was a contract agent for the CIA in Central America and the Caribbean. In 1977, moments before he was to be interviewed by House investigators, de Morinchild blew his brains out with a 20-gauge shotgun. House investigators believe he was a crucial link between the CIA and Lee Harvey Oswald. There is no question that the sealed JFK files are extremely embarrassing for the CIA. House investigators have told Inside Edition that the agency did not fully cooperate in their investigation and that the CIA had final say in the report that the House Assassinations Committee made public. Thus, the public report makes no mention of the CIA's links with Lee Harvey Oswald. But the secret documents are another story. One interesting sidelight, the movie JFK was partially based on Jim Garrison's investigation in New Orleans. Well, House investigators uncovered evidence that the CIA planted nine agents inside the Garrison investigation to feed him false information and to report back to Langley on what Garrison was finding out. What do you think about George DeMorenschild? Is there some accurate connection with the intelligence community? Oh, yeah. George DeMorenschild was a spy for a lot of different people over the years. He was a quite remarkable man. They picked him up for what they thought was attempting to assassinate DeMarshall Tito. He went into Guatemala. He went into the impenetrable jungles of Guatemala. He and his wife, he said, and they emerged on the very day that the Bay of Pigs troops left Guatemala City. He arrived in Guatemala City. He worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. He was the baby. Well, well, I presume he probably did, but in any event, he was the babysitter for Lee Harvey Oswald for the CIA. And uh, he, he was about to be called as a witness before 
the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and he died the day before he was supposed to call. I went down there for the coroner's inquest. It was quite interesting because the district attorney... What happened was this. Jamar was staying at a home where his daughter lived. His daughter was staying with a very wealthy woman in Florida. And this woman, it's kind of like a Columbo movie, and this is before the days when people had the videotape recorders. She went out, this woman, uh, to uh, play a, a bridge tournament. Uh, but she wanted to watch, she wanted to have a record made of some soap opera. So she said to her domestic worker, here's an audio tape recorder, just put it on and record the, uh, the sound of this television uh, soap opera. And so the tape recorder was playing. And then you hear George, you hear the bullet, the, the, the shotgun explode. The shot that killed uh, George DeMarshall. They claimed he committed suicide. But if you listen to the tape, you hear this. You hear a little noise, and you hear silence, and you hear some, then you hear beep, 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 a little more noise, and then you hear the shot. The beep, 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 beep was a security system on medium mode. One mode is if, uh, if it's on fully armed, if anyone opens a door or window, a siren goes off and the police are notified. On another mode, it's off entirely, but on the medium mode, it goes beep, 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 beep to show that someone has opened the door and come into the house. Just before the marshal was shot, that's what happened. And I talked to the district attorney when I listened to that tape. I was down there just before the coroner's inquest, and I said, does that sound like someone came in the house? He said, we're not going to go into that. And I said, why? I said, you understand why? This is bigger than all of us. We have to do what we have to do. I said, I don't understand that. He said, well, listen, you know, you can't speak at the coroner's inquest. You're just going to be a spectator. I said, I know that. And so he played the tape and told the, the coroner's jury, uh, a cross-section of the folks in the area, that uh, this was a suicide, et cetera. And this woman on the coroner's jury said, that beep, 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 that sounds like my security system. That means somebody apparently went into the house. He said, we're not going into that. And so they ruled that it was the suicide, and that was the end of that. But I think there's some very serious questions as to whether he was murdered. It is now clear that, uh, in some instances, the, the agency lied about the 201 file, about its contents, did not give the House Select Committee access to parts of the file that they knew existed and wanted to see. The information it contains not only confirms the government's very early interest in Oswald's activities, but discloses a startling revelation. Oswald was directly involved in sensitive intelligence operations for the CIA and probably for the FBI as well.
Here we have the, national, the, um, the transcript of the January 21st, 1964 executive session of the Warren Commission. And in it, they're discussing the fact that they knew that Oswald had worked for the FBI. He'd been assigned a payroll number as, as uh, 179, and he was been paid $200 per month from September of 62 until the time of the assassination. seen revealed one conspiracy after another. Anybody would have, to be, uh, would have to be a fool nowadays to dismiss conspiracies. And perhaps we lived in a fool's paradise before the Kennedy assassination. Men who create power make an indispensable contribution to the nation's greatness. But the men who question power make a contribution just as indispensable, especially when that questioning is disinterested. For they determine whether we use power or power uses us. before and I quote again Mr. Jefferson that if we expect a nation to be ignorant and free we expect it never was and never will be. They're, the, the way they look, they look determined and, and, and reverent at the same time but still they're a bloody good bunch of killers. When our intelligence forces brought in their reports warning that if the election called for by the Geneva Accords for July 1956 were held, Ho Chi Minh would be elected president in South Vietnam by at least 80% of the vote. I had a hell of a time with Morse this morning. He insisted that our PT, that our destroyers were there to back up. He said it on television last night. He said it. Uh, he said we were... There is a predisposition still on the part of the mainstream media to believe it all works, the system works. And it's only the sort of crazies on the fringes who want to keep saying, no, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. There's a conspiracy at work. And the two are converging all the more because the evidence has brought them together. I have a feeling, therefore, that this uh, harassment attack and this attack with uh, 20 or more torpedoes upon two of our uh, uh, destroyers was designed to uh, uh, force us out in a way lest we precipitate a greater struggle. I have a feeling that they've misread America once again. The City Councilman Tom Bradley said this indicates the dangerous degree of hysteria and hate which has consumed some elements of our nation. And another councilman, the City Council... I think that uh, uh, there's great danger in this country uh, because of the fact that so much of our economy is geared uh, in the military area. There is grave danger of uh, a military... Uh, industrial alliance of a kind uh, actually affecting policy. Mr. Nixon has participated in since you've been in the White House and he as Vice President has been helping you. 
I just wondered if you could give us an example of a major idea of his that you had adopted in that role as the as the decider and uh, and final. Uh... If you give me a week, I might think of one. Power leads man towards arrogance. Poetry reminds him of his limitations. When power narrows the areas of man's concern, poetry reminds him of the richness and diversity of his existence. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. Communism is the scavenger of decaying civilizations. It makes its way into a country and into a culture only when that culture begins to rot from the inside. Measure of the incipient death in any civilization is the progress that communism makes. And just as soon as this culture begins to die, then this winged scavenger with the mechanical wings of hammer and sickles descend upon these decaying countries in order to devour them. <laughs> 